Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm super excited to tell you uh, that I'm speaking with Caroline Say. Caroline is currently the Executive VP and Chief Legal Officer at Western Union. And what a story Caroline has. You know, sometimes when I talk to my podcast guests and I reflect on the discussion, I think about how with children, you're not meant to have any favourites, but sometimes you can't help yourself. And it's a little bit the same with your podcast guests. It's a marvellous story, starting from how she immigrated to the US as a five-year-old from a chicken farm of, I think, 20,000 chickens to then leading a team of 2,000 people across 50 countries. What a journey. Way too many highlights to call out, but I will mention a couple. Uh, She talks about how Western Union put together a rally team to deal with the challenges of the pandemic and to deliver on innovation and digital innovation in, in fintech. And she also talks about the personal impact of the recent racial attacks on Asian Americans. It's a marvellous story, some fantastic insights. I absolutely love the discussion, and I'm sure you will too. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hi, Caroline. It's great to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thanks for having me, Jim. Now, Caroline, you're currently the Executive VP and Chief Legal Officer Um, at Western Union. You've been there for four years. Tell me a little bit about the Caroline Tay story. What got you interested in law in the first place? (laughs) So I am originally from probably 40 miles outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil. I spent the first few years of my life before I immigrated to Queens, New York on a chicken farm. And uh, growing, I, I love these stories. I, I know I'm just going to love this already, Caroline. I got to tell you, come on. And, and not just any chicken farm. I'm talking twenty thousand chickens. Although wow. I have very interesting memories of Brazil, and they all revolve around animals. But that's yeah. a story for another day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, came to the U.S., uh, landed in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, but then grew up in in Queens, New York. Yeah. And and how old at the time when when you came? I was uh, five and a half. Five and a half. Yep. Cool. Uh, and people always ask, "Oh, are you fluent in Portuguese or, or Mandarin?" The short answer is, I will never say I'm I'm fluent in Portuguese. Yeah. I will not disclose how much I understand. I'd like to pretend <laughs> I don't understand it's anything. A- it's a secret weapon. I hear you loud and clear. But my parents were so worried about keeping three languages and so focused on Mandarin that they stopped speaking Portuguese. But my grandparents, who lived in Brazil for 20 years, always spoke that combination of Portuguese and Chinese. So grew up in Queens, New York, being raised Asian American. There was always this kind of... Uh, Assumption, well, you're you're going to go and be a doctor. Of course. Fun, right? You want to have a good job, just you're going to be yep. so. it's either It's either the doctor or the lawyer, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one of those two. Well, yep. definitely not a lawyer because uh, what happened was I, so I started off pre-med, went to university again, and let's just say that pre-med aspirations literally disappeared the first moment I took my first political science class. 
I loved it so much. I basically threw pre-med to the side and then freaked out my parents when I said I wanted to be a lawyer because their response was, wait a minute, we're really worried about you. Number one, you are so painfully shy because all they thought about in terms of a lawyer was what they saw on TV. And they said, you can't even speak without crying because you're so painfully shy. So that doesn't work. Secondly, we've never met a Chinese lawyer. Are you sure they exist? And they were very, very worried about me. And I said, no, no, I, that's what I really like. I, I, I think I want to be a lawyer. And, and I, I didn't go directly to law school. I yep. got married at young. Yep. Yep. But so, so what was it in, you know, those early days, the classes, the, what, what was it that certainly it was not um, med, you worked that bit out, but what was it that actually leaned you towards law? Well, you'll, you'll laugh. I actually aspired to be one of two things, uh, either a litigator, which was the only type of law I understood from TV, or I dreamed of somehow going into diplomacy and working for the State Department and traveling the world. In many ways, I guess I achieved my dreams now that I work for a global company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, the first part of your career, I know you, you spent about six years as an associate at Jones Day. Tell me a little bit about that as kind of foundational stuff before you moved in-house. And that, again, was just pure, not planned. Yeah. I, I went in with a keen desire to pursue litigation, but because I spent my first summer at the Department of Justice Criminal Division Fraud Section investigating the tobacco industry executives, like, if you recall yeah, back in, in those days. certainly do. The movie yeah. The Insider, that was me and the FBI agents and DOJ all summer long. Is that right? The movie The Insider, if you ever want to see that movie. Fantastic. <laughs> Not the movie, the actual facts, right? And so I, I showed up my second year to start my summer associate summer, and there were signs in all these conference rooms. Caroline Sai cannot walk into this room. Caroline Sai is conflicted out. And the managing partner of the law firm brought me, sat down and said, hey, we need to have a little conversation. Because you spent your summer at DOJ, you are conflicted out of many of our significant litigation matters. But it's okay, because we're going to have you meet Mark, who is to this day my favorite boss and mentor of all time. He's retired. He's in his 70s. He's the head of the business practice group, and I never looked back. And so he mentored me. I became a deal lawyer and never even considered litigation again. What a fantastic story. So rather than shipping you off to another firm, <laughs> finding you an, a mentor in the you know, um, outside of litigation and kicking off your career that way. Yeah. Yep. And um, he was amazing because he was not your typical partner. He was a seasoned partner. And, and you know, the, the, these were the days where we were so busy. We had five or six of the global banks, investment banking partners. We were structuring deals every single day, right? So you would spend 10 hours a day negotiating. Then you would spend seven or eight hours at night drafting the documents, sleep for two hours and come back and do it all over again. But he not only did he teach everything in terms of the fundamentals of being a good deal lawyer, he also said on day one, when I'm done, Caroline, I'm going to teach you the most important part of the practice of law. And that's number one, understanding client relationships and learning their business. And number two, really learning how to, how to draft and communicate, which means you really understand the business. And so he did all that, plus 
to the chagrin of some other people, he would bring me <laughs> to networking functions, which was unusual. For instance, bring me to an NBA basketball game with other partners and the client because he said, you're, you're on this account. You need to meet my cl- the clients. And he took that extra step to say, the people skills are so important and I'm going to teach you the people skills. So, so I love those stories, Caroline. The, the, those early mentoring moments and, well, mentors and how important they can be in, in your career. How have you translated you know, those learnings in the way that you, I suppose you manage your teams now and um, the, the mentoring that you try to uh, pass on to team members? Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, I think the advice and the coaching he gave me early on I've seen carry through in all the different companies I've worked at, as well as the teams that that I coach. And that is the the importance and the power of relationship building and listening. Um, I think the best advice I would give for people who are thinking about new opportunities, how to how to make that leap is you have to give yourself time to really listen completely fine, uh, starting a new job, starting a new role leading a new team, to simply just not know the answer. Be confident that all the experiences that you've gained step-by-step along the way actually positioned you to actually be considered for whatever role you're given. And and that confidence and the confidence to to say, you know what, I I, actually don't know the answer. Let me get back to you is perfectly fine. And I think that that builds that that, uh, relationship and trust with – you know, whether you're dealing with your team or you're dealing with your, your clients. It, it is so much about um, trust, isn't it? And doing, basically doing the groundwork. You're, so, you're in such a rush in your career, I think, when you're younger, which is fantastic, fine, but actually those, those skills, being able to really truly develop relationships and those relationships, whether they're external with clients or internal with your own team, they just take time and they take listening. I always think about listening as easy to say, really hard to do, because I think I've mentioned this recently, we're always thinking about what we're going to say in response rather than, you know, what, what's our point, particularly as a litigator, rather than actually trying to understand um, what we're being told. You're absolutely <laughs> right, because one of the most um, interesting forums I attended, it was actually slightly before the pandemic, and it was all about leadership and uh, what the traits uh, of, of the lawyer, the future was all about. And it was actually quite interesting because it was a Harvard business professor who was kind of comparing, contrasting the way lawyers are educated versus the way business school students are educated and how different it is because in law school, essentially it's you kind of, you're, you're a sole contributor competing, right? And there's that that different trait, and, and then there's all the traits that you know people have those t- typical stereotypes and characterizations of lawyers. They tend to be more risk adverse. Whereas in business school, you learn teamwork and you learn that networking skill, uh, which in many ways I think law school should consider that. It's it's so fundamental to success in the future. Yeah, yeah. Now I've said a dozen times before that um, it took me a long time to get that skill, that networking, because I, because I, I think law in the, I think the training 
does lean towards essentially solo performance, um, winning the argument, thinking about the, the solution, thinking about the problems on your own and trying to come up with ways in which to solve the problems or reduce the risk or identify every single risk I think you're right. I think it's not really, it, it's it's more towards how do I win rather than how do I get to yes. We had this discussion, I think, a, a couple of episodes ago with um, the, 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 the framework is about winning rather than how do I get to um, a yes that gets us a mutually beneficial uh, business result. So that's really interesting. Tell me about then the transition. You spent some time groundwork in a law firm, which is always fantastic grounding for any lawyer in a top tier firm. Then you moved in house. Tell me about that. What surprised you about that? Uh, what skills did you equip you well, and what didn't equip you so well? Yeah. So I, I always say that working, starting off at a law firm, taught me the fundamentals of uh, being a good lawyer. But it wasn't until I took the opportunity to go in house where I truly began to learn the business, learn to go beyond being a a lawyer advisor, but a a strategic business partner. And then the funnest part was learning how to lead Uh, because I had the good fortune of working um, at the time at Bank of America where they truly believed in talent development. And I took the opportunity to get involved in various affinity groups, which was fundamentally, I think, the reason why I was able to show leadership skills at a time where I was an individual contributor, make no mistake, I think yep. for a good six years. And despite taking on new and more projects, I was just an individual contributor. Right. Being able to leverage opportunities and to gain visibility outside a legal department I think was fundamental to my growth um, as a lawyer. But that that first six weeks, I can tell you, was culture shock for me. Yeah. Number one, because when they first called me, my client, I had worked with B of A New York. So right. when they called me and said, no, 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 this is B of A in Charlotte, North Carolina, I'll tell you what I said. I said, I, I, my husband couldn't believe I said this to my client. I said, you're talking to somebody from Queens, New York. I would never move south of Virginia. I, <laughs> I'm kind of scared. And and they actually chuckled and they said, okay, do you realize Charlotte is the second you know, largest financial center in the U.S. outside of New York? And I said, yeah, okay. And, and, um, and then I said, listen, if I'm going to consider moving from my beloved Washington, D.C. to Charlotte, I need to bring my family in tow. And we're going to have to come down for a visit and see what I'm, uh, I'm looking at here. And I said, I am so busy. The The only time I can come is NASCAR Speed Week, right, before Memorial Day. And there was this complete speechless silence on the phone. And I said, hello. <laughs> Are you still there? <laughs> yeah, we beg you. You can't come. You can't come any week but that week. And I said, why? And they said, because you already have this perception coming from the East Coast that, you know, we're X, Y, and Z, and that's NASCAR Speed Week. First of all, we don't think we can get you a hotel. Secondly, if we get you a hotel, you're going to be surrounded by chicken wings throwing beer guzzling fans. And that is not who we are. Um, So I said, regardless, I'm coming. So I came during NASCAR Speed Week. It was actually quite fun. (laughs) The interview went, drove back to D.C., got the offer, Sold my, put my house on the market, sold it in three hours. By the time I came back from vacation, 
I had to give notice and it was, it was rough. And it was also shocking because my beloved partner said, no, no, you can't go. And I said, I have to, I don't have a house anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of committed. Was that, I'm kind of committed. I've yeah. sold so my then, house. So then I come, so I start and I'm yep. shell shocked. I went from quite simply knowing the answer to every question posed to absolutely not knowing the answer to any question posed. Um, this whole concept of group law where at Jones Day you could walk down the hall and say, hey, what do you think about this, right? That didn't exist. Although I joined a team of 700 plus amazing seasoned lawyers, you had amazing, significant responsibility. And I found it very unsettling. <laughs> Every day was a new day. The acronyms, I think there were 500 acronyms. Half the calls I joined, I had no idea what they were talking. It was like it's like a different language and and so it was it was a big transition yep. and of course you had to stay silent because the old adage better i stay silent and they think i'm stupid rather <laughs> than open open my mouth and they know that i'm stupid so that that w- w- was that the beginning yeah, yeah. And, and i will say uh, to this day i'm so happy i took that leap because i joined at an amazing time so to give you context From the time I joined to the time I left, we went from 300,000 employees to 200,000. We went from over $40 a share to $3 a share under TARP. We went through five acquisitions. Amazing, amazing experiences for a lawyer. To this day, when I run into my B of A alums, it's like we had this bonding experience that, that is unmeasured because it was just such a fun time to be uh, in a law department, and just the talent and the kind of coming together to basically deal with all the twists and turns of the Great Recession. It was amazing. Yeah. But wait, and tell me, what was it about those challenges? Because it would have been a, a, an incredibly tumultuous time, particularly over uh, the Great Recession, as you say. So what was it? Was it because it was really hard? You didn't think you'd get through it? Didn't think you'd have a job at the end. What 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 are the features when you look back and you go, that's the kind of experience. It was all of that. Um, so it's all of that. Yeah. Uh, to your point about if you thought you'd have a job at the end. So as I mentioned, we went through five acquisitions, and in every case, we were the acquirer, right? So imagine the, the surprise on the last one, the acquisition of Merrill Lynch. Uh, we were we all had to re-interview for our jobs. <laughs> as they compared and contrasted. But I will say, for me, the reason why it was so transformative was because I got lucky. When I was hired at B of A, I was hired for a very specific job. It was to be the underwriter's counsel for Bank of America Securities for fixed income and specifically within fixing um, ABS securities. Right. So very specific, right? It it sounds like an absolute blast, I tell you. When you describe it that way, Caroline, I'm at the edge of my seat. (laughs) It was not an absolute blast, but to my good fortune, two weeks after I started, uh, they announced the first of five acquisitions, and the first was the acquisition of the largest credit card bank in the U.S., Canada, U.K., and I raised my hand to help with the acquisition, the merger of the two banks, and to build the first publicly registered ABS program for B of A. And so my job responsibilities changed very quickly, and I ended up covering the CFO group. I, I kind of seized the moment. 
I still remember the the meeting where the managing director said, I raised my hand and he smiled and said, sorry, I'm sorry, Caroline, you've been here two weeks. Have you ever dealt with the SEC? No. Have you ever merged a bank? No. Have Do you even know what a publicly registered, what Reg A is? No. And then he, and he, and he said, okay. And then he said, you've got the job. (laughs) Anyone, anyone else? And everyone's like, nope, we're all full Ah. up. And he just sighed and he's like, okay, you get it. And, and, and um, he gave it to me. That's a marvelous story. Marvelous story. And and so why did you put your hand up? What was it uh, uh, that said, yeah, uh, I'm up for this? Uh, Because to your point, I, I get bored very easily. I always want to stretch and learn. And the, the, the job description, to be quite honest, if it had not changed, I probably would have returned back to law practice. Yeah. And if you'd give advice to some of those, everyone listening out there about the, about stretching yourself, about not perhaps not being afraid of change, well, is that what the advice would be, to stretch yourself, don't be afraid of change? That's where you get Always, always have that commitment to stretch. And, you know, I have to be careful when I think about all the different aspirations, not everyone needs to push and stretch. I, I would say, I always say to, to mentees, if you're too comfortable, you're probably going to be bordering on, you just know it so well, you might be bored. So give yourself that little layer of uncertainty and the unknown, and that's going to keep you energized and growing. And, and I, I look at it the same way when I hire I really, really try to see, is there curiosity and is there a growth mindset? Because those two things are so important. Yeah. Uh, I think that desire, you call it a growth mindset, whether it's just to learn. I'm interested and curious in learning more. When I think about hiring too, looking at someone, is it someone that's done the precise job before or is it someone that is capable given their history of doing that job, but but learning, if you like, to, in order to do so. Because if they've done exactly the same thing before, you do miss that. Okay, what are they going to learn new on this job? And I think that characteristic of of um, of people wanting to learn and wanting to grow and stretch, however they describe it to themselves, whether they think they're describing it as a growth mindset, but I think it's that that it is that inherent kind of curiosity. And I think Jeff, that it's also that's what makes it very um, special to go in house because when you think about a law department, you know the big ticket litigation or the big deals, you're always going to have that amazing subject matter expert in a law firm, right? And so I've always believed because of my experience where I was able to learn everything at B of A, not just deal work, but litigation and, and public policy, all that. If you have, again, that curiosity, ability to learn quickly, and most importantly, judgment, you can navigate any legal or risk issue as a, in, 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 in-house because Again, for those big ticket, ticket bet the company kind of issues, you're, they're not going to just rely on your your judgment, right? You're going to have some strategic subject matter experts. All right. So, so Caroline, um, come I think uh, December 2017, you join Western Union as as its general counsel, at company secretary. Tell me, why did they pick Caroline? <laughs> so I got the call. In 2017, and in 2017, they were navigating, I think their top issue from a legal regulatory compliance perspective was that was the year that their 
were two significant regulatory compliance matters handed down. One was the Department of Justice uh, Deferred Prosecution Agreement. The second was the FTC Consent Order. And this all related to issues pre-2012. Um, and so they were looking uh, for a general counsel, first and foremost, to ensure that we would remediate and close out these issues on time, because that essentially was fundamental for the company. That was the deal. Yeah. But in my conversation with the CEO and the board, I was very curious what they were looking for in a general counsel. It was clear that being able to navigate this, which is very much kind of an operational execution kind of leadership role, that for me, the general counsel role, and this is not my idea, this is from that famous uh, general counsel, Ben Heinemann, this concept of both strategic advisor and guardian, it was important to me that when I chose a general counsel role, it was not skewed just one way, that the strategic advisor piece was so important to me as well. Uh, I had a great conversation with them, understood where they wanted, you know, what the, what the top needs were, but more fundamentally for me, what, what excited me was really connecting and understanding with the executive team, and in particular, Hikmet, the CEO, where he wanted to take this company that had years and years of heritage, but was at this inflection point of being fintech, and it really needed to continue to innovate. And that, that was my passion because I told them if there's one belief I have, uh, especially in financial services, it's the power of lawyers to work hand in hand with the business to innovate because financial services is all about innovation, right? And, and really understanding the, the risk and most importantly, the opportunities within the regulatory framework and what the needs were from a customer perspective. So that's why I joined. So I'm going to do a bit of a deeper dive on the innovation front, particularly in fintech, in a couple of minutes. Just before I get there, though, how did you get your arms around what you needed to do? You've come, you're a new, you know, you don't know any, you don't have any history, you're a new GC, you're coming in. What do you do in the first 100 days to identify what the three key priorities are? Or, or are they already set, essentially, because of what had happened? Before Western Union, the only companies I'd worked at were actually banks, and initially, when Western Union first called me, I was initially concerned that it wouldn't be as challenging because I was coming from covering 100 lines of business to two. But to my surprise, that was certainly not the case because this is truly the most global company, 200 countries. And so the complexity in itself differentiates it. I think for me, the nice surprise was from a regulatory compliance perspective, many of the top regulators that I was familiar with were the very same ones that I was dealing with, whether it was Central Bank of Ireland, CFPB, NYDFS. Um, but in terms of learning uh, the complexity of the business, one of the learnings I had in my first role as Chief Legal Officer of BMO Harris Bank was in the first 90 days, really taking time to identify and learn who are the leaders who absolutely understood the business and would be able to distill and describe it to me in plain language. <laughs> and um, I learned quickly to figure out who those individuals were. And I spent the first 30 days, actually, primarily most of my days were 30-minute check-ins, not only with my team, but 
the business team and making my rotations. And it was fun to see how different people would lay it out in a different way and, and kind of putting that all together, synthesizing it and slowly learning the business. So, so it sounds like you, you put yourself on a kind of a crash course to understand as much as you can, not just the legal side, it was really about who can explain the business to me mm-hmm. in as clear language as possible and presumably then put the legal framework around that. Was that the understand the business first? Was that the kind of the goal there? It was. And then, of course, I had the added benefit since we had the significant remediation to to cover. There were so many deliverables and precise issues, which, you know, by default made you learn the business. If you needed to ensure that you had fraud alerts and fraud warnings, you needed to understand the end-to-end customer process. So I think because of that, that also helped me kind of go into the understanding of the back office and how does this really work and what were the potential impacts to consumers. So I think that helped too. Yep, understood. So let's go back to innovation in fintech, digital transformation. Talk about that at Western Union and no doubt it would have been a bit bit of a crash course for you there too. Talk about what that actually means um, in a company like Western Union. I think I'll probably draw draw upon the most recent experience with COVID and the yep, pandemic. Please, yeah, yeah. Because I think across industries, you'll, you'll find, Jim, that as a result of the pandemic across in, industries, you really saw digitize, uh, the move to the digital uh, world, new customer ex- expectations. And whereas for us, even before the pandemic, we had to innovate because we're in the payments industry it was even more accelerated. And and for my team, I have an interesting role because I lead the consolidated legal, public policy, compliance, and enterprise risk group. So it's about 2,000 people in 50 countries. It's not a typical uh, CLO role. Just a small small team though, Caroline, just a couple thousand people, 50 countries, yep. And, and before the pandemic, we had recently kind of stood up our enterprise risk management program. But what happened as a result of the pandemic is the chief risk officer reporting to me now had to immediately rally the troops, focus on business continuity, figure out all the issues, make sure we can continue to move money for our customers in the midst of all these global lockdowns. And if you can imagine, Jim, the complexity of all the different countries in many of them, they decided banks were essential services, but not Western Union. And so we'd have to be creative. Yeah, leverage our, our regulatory and public policy uh, expertise. It, one, one example I remember vividly, I was so proud of my legal team, was Switzerland decided, no, nope, we're going to shut you down. You're not essential service. You're, out of, you're shut down. And the creativity of the business legal team and the public policy, you know what they said? They put their heads together and they said, who has the power in Switzerland? The railroads, right? And so yep. right. Uh, yeah. So they went to their contact in the railroads. And, and I, I think within eight to 10 hours, we were back up and running. So that, that kind of shows you what we had to do. But from a technology perspective, during the pandemic, some examples that really give me a lot of pride is, while we're trying to keep the business running during the shutdown, we stood up what's called an EKYC compliance solution, where we were able to work with our regulators, get the approvals, and enable customers to complete their know your customer information in a digital environment 
we launched in certain locations where there were lockdowns and customers were looking for options, this whole concept of home delivery, where the, the funds would be delivered to their doorstep. We launched all these new onboarding digital solutions uh, for our agents. So we've got about 500 different agents. And to give you context, Jim, these are agents that could be, you know, La Banque Postale, which is the post office in France, or it could be Walgreens yep. uh, or Walmart. And I think what the, the success here was, I, I say a lot of this, I, I give the credit to our product and platform president, Shelly, who is very experienced in innovation and the disruption of the industry. And what we stood up together was this whole concept of a rally team. And what I love most about this, and we have carried this through with our kind of interaction model with the law department, as we think about product development and product optimization is, in the past, I'll tell you, especially in banking, I would see situations where the, the client wants to create a new product or they want to go into a new jurisdiction. They kind of ideate with marketing and all the business leaders. And then, you know, 10 weeks later, they throw it over the wall to legal and compliance, right? Not very good, uh, not very protective. Here, we now have, we have so many learnings from this kind of rally team perspective. And a couple of learnings there. Number one, connecting the dots, having a seat at the table at the front end is so much more satisfying, rewarding. You don't have the issue where you have, you know, legal being the department of no. And then you can ideate together. It's fun. It's exciting. That's something that I've learned is great. And, and the one learning for my team, I think, that we always talk about is during the crisis, you know how lawyers like to be perfect, right? Yeah. There's, there's no perfection. There's no perfection during a crisis. Is that what you're going to tell me? Well, yeah, they had to get it 80% right. Yeah. And I had to have these conversations saying, listen, guys, you're never going to be fired for getting it wrong, right? You trust your instincts. You're very experienced, um, and we're gonna we're gonna get it done. And so I think that getting comfortable about taking smart risks also helped us evolve in in terms of going forward. Now that you know we're getting back to normal, there's a new I think appreciation from the legal team that the way I see it, Jim, black and white. You frankly, you don't even need lawyers. And it's the gray, making sure you're making the right risk appetite decisions, giving the right recommendation so that you can strategically advise the business. Yeah. A a acting within the gray, I suppose. Um, yeah. W with, with that kind of mindset. It's interesting when I think about a business like Western Union, the accelerant that, that the pandemic for all its downsides, but the accelerant it must have provided for the kind of the, the digital transformational initiatives that you're talking about, it must have been incredible. Um, something that might, might otherwise have taken years to actually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that on the dot-com side and using our mobile app, we experienced such an increase. And I think in a large part, it was because customers fundamentally trust, trust the company. And we, we're celebrating our... 170 years of, of history. And I think that was the reason why there was this acceleration. And then because we had this platform that could provide 24-7 uh, capabilities and we could do it in 130 currencies, there's, there's 
20,000 plus corridors, right? Egypt to Paris, you know, Sao Paulo to New York. But I think that's what was a nice surprise because we actually were able to transition to remote work, except for our frontline associates, fairly quickly. And the fact that we were able to keep the business running and, you know, th- there, there were some challenging days where you know, our regional operating centers, we simply didn't have enough laptops, right? And, and you couldn't get them fast enough. So there was a lot of standing up to ensure business continuity. Caroline, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I know you're passionate in relation to DE&I initiatives. Let me make a statement out there and, and, and tell me if you agree or disagree. Well, how do you think the legal industry has coped and is it struggling with really making an impact in DNI? What What are your thoughts there? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It is It is struggling. Let's Let's be clear. And, and why? Why? What, what can be done? It, it's, it's actually amazing how little has changed on the one hand. But on the other hand, I actually am hopeful. You know, I think back to when I started the practice of law and I was one of three Asian American females. And I still remember the day after being confused for the only other one who looked nothing at, like me and I was called another name three times. And then when I said, actually, I'm not, you know, Emily. And the response was, well, it's okay. You all look the same. I remember getting so upset and responding in a very pithy way. I said, well, that's right. From the back with an extra 30 pounds and curly hair, you also look like Julie, you know, so-and-so. And and I remember this partner kind of like looked and went, ah, and laughed. And I remember marching back to, to my partner's office, Marks, and he's like, you look really upset. And I said, no, I just had to say something. And he said, Good for you. So anyway, I got really involved in DEI right when I joined B of A. And to be honest, getting involved in DEI actually changed my aspirations. I can still remember the first time I went to the National Asian Pacific American Conference. When I I was in awe, Jim, I, I, I literally said, wait, there's an actual female Asian American general counsel of a public company in the U.S. I was so struck. I'd never seen that before. And so it just changed my dreams and aspirations. And many of the Asian American GCs became my mentor. And their only request was to pay it forward. Um, so I've probably mentored 30 to 40 law students, lawyers. I love it. It's my extracurricular. In times when it's busy or stressful, this extracurricular of working on the pipeline really keeps me energized. Fantastic. Yeah. And I love that. My only requirement is you pay it, you pay it down or you pay it out. And that is, that's got to be one of the most important ways to actually deliver on change. And I take it, and that's why you're passionate about it. I am, but I'll say the other part of the pandemic that was tough was the rise of anti-Asian violence And for me, it was particularly upsetting because I actually felt guilty, uh, Jim, because I said to myself, well, for two reasons. First of all, I I had experienced a couple of incidences where, you know, people said some terrible things and screamed at me to go back to China because I was, uh, you know, the the cause of the virus. So, you know, that was that was okay, Right. I, I did kind of fear walking for a while. But then. I kind of sat there and I said, I'm kind of ashamed because here I am 
I've been the sponsor for LGBT pride groups, for women, for all of these diversity initiatives, but I've never spoken about some of the challenges, you know, the model minority myth, just really leaning in and speaking out about, number one, how this rise of violence was absolutely unacceptable, and then also creating a safe space for employees to speak about it. And I will say it was tough. I I remember speaking about it. I kind of got emotional, which surprised me, as well as my team. But what came out of it was amazing that the employees who who would say things like, yeah, I care deeply about this because my wife is Japanese. And, you know, and, and so it, it really gave me a lot of time to think about how can I better speak about some of these issues, the model minority myth, all of the things that we as a community have to come together and address and, and more holistically, just standing against hate crimes of any stripe, right? So it It was certainly challenging last year, but it was also empowering to see the community of Asian American leaders speak up for the first time, whether it was financial services or law. And is there any reason you think that they hadn't spoken up, let's say, earlier? Was there no platform? Was there, because there there seems to me to be an always um, an underlying need, but why didn't we hear it earlier? Or was it really the, the, the recent hatred that we've seen and the incidents. Honestly, I think a lot of it, you know, not to overgeneralize, a lot of it is cultural. Yeah. You know, as Asian Americans, we are raised to kind of keep our heads down. Down. Work hard. Yeah, work hard. Don't don't make a fuss. I mean, even in my career changes, each and every time when I got an opportunity, my dad would say, why would you do that? You're in yeah. a perfectly great. Why would you even ruffle feathers? And look at you. Look at your job. Look at where you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that really explains a lot of it. And and also the other pieces. There were some people who would say things they they didn't think it was a in any way offensive, but they would say, "Oh my gosh, you know, I've never thought of you as Asian, Caroline." And I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, I was going to say, what do? How do you feel? <laughs> what What do you? Say? Yeah, so it's pretty complex. But you know, the good news is, I think, as a consequence, there's for the first time, I feel there is more of that dialogue. But to answer your question about if there's been any progress, the answer is no. Very slow progress. I am worried about going backwards because of the pandemic, because of all. You know, there's a lot of burnout in in the legal profession, and we're going to lose a lot of working moms. I'm seeing a lot of impacts in terms of, you know, diverse employees where it's not just necessarily child care expectations, but elder care, right? You've got people with families, three or four generations living. It's it's challenging, and we're going to have to think through how to make sure we retain that talent. Um, Caroline, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Certainly the hardest thing I've ever done, and it's so much easier now because I'm now an empty nester, is trying to have that work-life balance um, because I started off at Jones Day with three-month-olds. So I've always been a working mom. And the one thing I've realized, and if I were to give advice, is outsource, outsource, ask for help. You can't do it alone. And depending on where you are in your career and where you are in your family life, 
there is no balance. You just have to make choices. <laughs> no. Yeah, there is something about the word balance. I think it's the wrong word mm-hmm. uh, because it, I don't think it is a balance. Uh, I'm not sure what the best word is, though, but um, I, I think I think when you put it as a, um, describe it in that way, I think. It's definitely a juggle. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's juggle because the balance yeah. balance suggests that there is a point at which, which is kind of perfect. You've got the right, because balance means you're standing perfect, but I'm not sure that it is. It is. It is, um, to me, depending upon your priorities, it is what are you going to focus on and what are you prepared to compromise? Because it is just a question of what are you compromising? Now, especially when you're, um, whatever the field is, but if you know, you're in legal, you're trying to get ahead, the reality is the time and the commitment and the energy, like any profession, it's, it's significant and it's just a question of how can you, what level of compromise Right. Do you want to cross other aspects in your life? Excellent. Yeah. I was going to finish off with what advice you give to your 25-year-old self. I think you've covered a little bit of it. Anything else that you would say to the Caroline Say of Young of 25? Take time to really enjoy where you are at that moment. Um, Concentrate on kind of getting the most out of where you are in that moment in time. And don't worry too much about what am I going to be doing five years from now? Where am I going to be? Right. I I think sometimes people, it's almost like the equivalent of, I don't even know what you call it from a career perspective or work perspective of keeping up with the Joneses. Right. Um, Take a pause, kind of be grateful, understand what you have. And yes, absolutely. Uh, Your career, you own your career but you can think about it in two-year increments, but enjoy yeah. wherever you are. Just enjoy it. And I've heard that so much. We live in the future. <laughs> we're, we're, it's really because we're all ambitious, looking to see where we're going to get ahead, but we taking that time to live in the present, especially, you know, when you start having family, young kids and so forth. That's really hard. But uh, And you get better at that as you get older. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and as my daughter likes to say, you're more than half a century, Mom. I'm like, thank you, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Caroline, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jim. Okay, bye-bye for now. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.